And very similar in some ways to the topic of last week, is Jesus the only way? A little bit more technical, a little bit more uh, in-depth um, material tonight that we're going to look at. If you want to turn to Daniel 3, that's where we're going to be tonight. But we're going to talk, our subject tonight is religious pluralism. And we're going to get to that if that's a very strange term to you or one that you're not familiar with or don't understand much of it. Maybe you've heard it, but you're not familiar with what it's all about. Hopefully you'll be better equipped tonight after we're done. But there's a couple books if you want to read them. There's a few books that are completely about this subject, but the, the better ones that I found actually um, are, have chapters in them that contain this subject, and I'm going to put a couple on the screen for you. Uh, the first one is Tim Keller, and he's been called the C.S. Lewis of our day, but he wrote a book called The Reason for God, and in it he has a chapter on this topic that's well worth reading. The book in itself is good. Um, so that would be one resource that you could use if you're interested, Tim Keller, The Reason for God. The second one is a more recent book, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, and she does a great job of raising I think 12, 10 or 12 questions that people who are lost are asking about Christianity and arguments that they are opposing Christianity with, and she does a great job of going through each one and giving you an understanding of how to respond to it and what it's all about. So those two books in particular have chapters about uh, religious pluralism in it, and you might want to reference them if you're interested in further study on that. Daniel chapter 3 is what we're going to look at tonight. Um, I hope that uh, not reading the whole chapter won't be a problem tonight, although we're going to refer to various parts of it. I, I would take that on a Wednesday night that most of you are probably familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I want to see how much. How many of you, now raise your hand right off the bat, how many of you would be able to tell me Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the Sumerian or the Babylonian names that they were given in Babylon. Now, don't look in your Bibles, L cheaters. All right? Can you tell me their names in Hebrew? It, obviously, not the Hebrew, but the, the English. Tim. Good. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. If you know anything about how Hebrew names are put together, the endings or the beginning with Yah on the end or El on the end. Is, and that's part of what God's name is. And what you find out is their Hebrew names were names about the God of the Bible, but the names they were given in Babylon all are names about the gods of Babylon. So um, there was a very um, intentional, and we're going to talk about that in religious pluralism, there was a very intentional uh, undertaking when they came to Babylon that they were going to in inculturate them into the society that they were living in, including gods and the religion part of it. Um, if you don't know anything about Daniel, the book, as far as the context goes, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon had actually two times he came to Jerusalem. Um, in 586 BC, which is the most prominent one because he destroyed um, Jerusalem in its entirety and completely destroyed um, the temple and all that was, but that was not, that was the second time he came. Ten years previous to that, he came in 596 BC. The first time he came, he didn't destroy everything. Um, 
he left a king upon king in its place and he took kind of the uh, upper echelons, the upper class, the highly educated, the very wealthy people, took all of them with him back to Babylon. And we think it was about somewhere around 10,000 people. Um, the second time he came back 10 years later is because they had rebelled against him and tried to decide with the Egypt, side with the Egyptians to uh, sort, of, sort of form a rebellion and he squashed it and then demolished everything. It is believed that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the first deportation. So they, they went uh, before the city was completely abolished. And they were part of the upper echelons, the upper class, the wealthy, the highly educated uh, court kind of people. And, and that's where we find ourselves in, 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 Daniel's class, in Daniel's situation. I say that all of that, not just for history's sake, but Daniel and his three friends were used to being in a culture where everything that was in their culture, um, the government, the uh, media, if there was such a thing, education, arts, whatever was part of their culture was supported by the one true God and the scriptures. Now they have been transported to a culture where the exact opposite is true. Now they have a culture which they live in which the government and the media and the arts and the education and everything about this culture is anti-God. In fact, it supports a completely different religious system altogether. Um, and I say that because that is exactly the day in which we live. In America, we used to be a generation or maybe more like two ago. Um, in America, um, you can, we could debate whether it was a Christian nation, but there were certainly Christian values in America uh, where there's praying in the schools and you could read the Bible and there was biblical Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian uh, values and morals and our culture had monuments with the Ten Commandments on it and, and, all, and all those things and almost all of that has now changed. And so we, are, we were in a culture that everything in our culture was supported by what we thought was the true and living God and the Bible and things of that nature, but now we're not. We live in a culture that is full of religious pluralism. So without saying that word one more time, without telling you what it is, let's watch a video and Sean's going to tell us, uh, McDowell, I think it's Sean, the other one, I'm not sure which one, it's not the other, is that one? Okay, we're going to see a video on a definition a little bit, I'll give you a little idea of what religious pluralism is about. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One Minute Apologist. Apologetics seeks to give credible answers to curious questions, to give a defense. What is religious pluralism? Religious pluralism is the belief that no one system owns absolute truth. Religious pluralists reject the idea of Jesus' statement where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A religious pluralist is okay with Jesus being a way, but not the way. The definite article, though, makes all the difference in the world. Jesus didn't come into the world to die on a cross for sinners because he believed that he was the best way, or a way. Nor did the disciples die martyrs' deaths because they believed that Jesus was the best way, or a way. No, Jesus believed he was the way, and the disciples believed he was the way. The question is, do you believe that Jesus is the way? Religious pluralism today is all over the place and it's even made its way in to the church. Sadly, we hear statements like this, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. 
But yet the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that the God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need to remember that. In the Old Testament, God rejected religious pluralism in the same way he does today. In fact, the ancient Israelites went into Babylonian and Assyrian captivity. Why? Because they became religious pluralists. They started worshiping the Canaanite gods of Baal, Moloch, and Ashtoreth. And as a result, they went into captivity as a form of punishment. We need to realize that God will hold us accountable in the church when we adopt forms of religious pluralism. Jesus couldn't have been more clear in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So with that little bit of understanding in our minds tonight about what religious pluralism is, we're going to take a look at an ancient story that has modern ramifications, and that's the Daniel 3 story. And in doing so tonight, I want to ask and answer a question, and that is, how do believers in the 21st century live for God in a pluralistic society? How do we do it? How, and we're going to take our cues from Daniel, and more particularly Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3. But truthfully, if you take the framework of religious pluralism and you study Daniel, the first, the narrative chapters, not, the apocalyptic chapters are 7 through 12, but Daniel 1 through 6, in every single chapter, you can see how they faced different forms and angles of religious pluralism and how they lived and responded to it. And it's a very, very relevant um, chapters for us in the day in which we live. If you're not familiar with, you know, religious pluralism sounds like it's high philosophy and over your head. So let me tell you on a very, you know, street level, um, what it would sound like if you heard someone who was a religious pluralist talking. Here's what they would say. Something like this. My problem with Christianity is that there are so many religions in the world. And then it's usually followed up with something like this. How in the world can you believe that you have the right religion and everyone else is wrong? I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone about the gospel or about Jesus and his death and resurrection, but that's not uncommon. In fact, they might even say, if they were bold enough, is that if you hold the view that we do as Christians, that that makes you intolerant. And that is a huge word in our day. We're going to say more about that a little bit. But Daniel's three friends are going to show us, and I, and I key this tonight, um, to live apologetically. To live apologetically. So in order to live apologetically, meaning living a defense of the gospel, not only by what you say, but what you do, in a pluralistic society, we need two features that we're going to go over tonight, just one at a time. First is this, real simple, you need to understand religious pluralism. We ha- had the definition given to us tonight, and so I want to discuss it, how it worked in Babylon and then how it works in America and perhaps in your, your uh, context as well. So I'm going to ask a question, we're going to answer it in the text. You know the story. In chapter 3, Bab- uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the plain puts up this 90-foot statue, which is pretty tall. You put a statue three times higher than the top of our building, our, our, our auditorium, and that's how tall the statue was. So it was no small thing. And commentators and theologians have uh, debated what the statue was and what did it represent. Three common options. Let me give them to you, and then I'm going to give you the preferred one that I think anyways. Option number one, it was the image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, the king of Babylon. Now, 
I have searched and read and read other people who've searched and read, and there is no evidence in any Babylonian records, and they're fairly extensive. There is no king worship. Um, now, when you get to first century, after Jesus' death, there's plenty of it in Caesar worship that did come about in Roman things, and other cultures at other times have. But there is no record whatsoever that Babylon and its kings, even as great as Nebuchadnezzar was, was getting, you know, getting divine status or being worshipped by anybody. So that's really not a historically possible option. Secondly, uh, a lot of people say, well, it was a statue of one of the Babylonian gods. Now, Hinduism has 330 million gods, so that would be hard to narrow it down. There weren't nearly as many Babylonian gods, but there was still quite a few. And, but in the passage, it never says that it was one of the gods. In fact, the word gods in the passage in Daniel 3 is always in the plural. Um, gods, little g gods. Um, and there's never mentioned, although the names of the gods are mentioned in the three uh, Hebrews' names, they're not mentioned formally. So if it was one of the gods, just one of them that was picked out of all the other ones, it's not told us why, and it's not given the name of that God, and we would never know that that was true by anything in the book or the chapter. So that would be an argument from silence, and I don't think that holds as much weight. What I think it is, and why it fits our subject tonight, and I chose this chapter, is that more commentators are, begin, are, are thinking that it is a statue that represented all the gods of Babylon. In fact, let me give you the text Chapter 3 and verse 12, let me read it with you. There are certain Jews, this is reported by other people who were jealous of them because they've already been set over Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then of chapter 2 were set over the kingdom under Daniel. So they were foreigners, and so the nationals, the Babylonians, weren't exactly excited about Jewish exiles being promoted above them. And so when they didn't bow down, they were sure to report it. That's also what took place in uh, Daniel and the lion's den story as well. So it says, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of providence of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. Now listen, they do not serve your gods, plural, or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Hebrew particle actually, it, it could be or and it could be nor. So, if it's the word nor, which I think it is more likely to be used in this book that way, it would mean that those two things are interchangeable. They don't serve your gods, nor the image. In other words, the image is what the gods are represented by. And that would make totally, total sense in, in, in this passage. And, and I'm going to tell you why. Because Nebuchadnezzar is using religious pluralism like... American politicians are using it today. And why everyone wants us to be tolerant, and here's why, because they don't want to have absolute truth. They don't want to teach that there is one way or one right answer or one right religion and because that would skew everybody's morality. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is saying all those millennia ago is what is being said today. In what was said in Jesus in the Apostles' Day, Nebuchadnezzar is not saying, listen to this, this is religious pluralism, he's not saying that you have to worship the Babylonian gods instead of your God. I don't think people in America too much would be too upset that if we worship Jesus Christ and all the other things that everybody else did, including that. 
So Nebuchadnezzar is not saying you have to drop your God and worship ours. He's saying what you have to do is put your God in addition to ours. In other words, here's all the gods we we worship. Just add Jesus to it. Or in his case, Yahweh. In the Old Testament, add, add Yahweh to it. But you can't, what you can't do, and what he is saying, is that you have to say all gods are equally valued, all the morals and religious traditions that come out of them are equally valuable, and what you can't say is that your god is the only god or your god is the exclusive god. And that's what makes religious pluralism upset. So why would he do this? Because it's the only way that Caesars and the only way that uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar thought that he could bring peace. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the known world and in Babylon, not to mention everywhere else he was in control of, um, there were all kinds of different nations and all kinds of different gods. And so not to wipe their gods out, but to add them all together and everybody tolerated everybody made it much more simpler for everybody to agree or so he thought. That is the same thing in today. Have you ever heard of someone, hey, I don't mind Christians, but why do they always try to convert people? And, and, and so why are you always trying to convert me to what you're trying to say? And, and that's what they were against. Um, everybody's God was okay, but nobody had the true God. That is what it means to be a religious pluralist. Now, in America, as I said before, we have the same thing. And I think that uh, our president and, and previous presidents and a lot of our people in government would like us all to not have a religion that says or is exclusive and says that they're the only one and that Jesus is the only way. Um, This next video is just a little bit more of a summary or a little bit more of a conversation or talk about that very point. So we're going to watch that one. This one is Sean McDowell. Can all religions be true? Studies show that quite a few number of Americans believe that all religions are kind of just on different paths heading to the same destination at the top. Is this possible? Does this make sense? Recently, I was riding in a taxi cab in Houston and got in a conversation with my taxi cab driver who was a Muslim. He was very kind and very generous. He asked me, why am I in town? What am I doing? And then he said, what did I speak on? And I told him I was speaking on a subject related to Christianity. And he said to me this, he said, oh, you're a Christian, that's great, because we worship the same God. And I simply responded by saying, oh, so you believe that Jesus is God. And he kind of jumped for a minute because clearly as a Muslim, he doesn't believe that Jesus is God. In fact, in Muslim, in Islamic theology, one of the worst sins you can commit is called shirk which is to associate anything with Allah. If you put something on the level of God, you have destined your soul to hell. So here's what's interesting. A Muslim says you can't believe Jesus is God and get to heaven. A Christian says you can't get to heaven unless you believe Jesus is God. Now, could both Christianity and Islam be false? Logically, yes, but they can't possibly both be true. If we just look at the great religions of the world, like Buddhism does not believe in a personal God. Most of it is a philosophy that's atheistic. What about Hinduism? Hindus believe in 330 million gods. Muslims, one God who's a unity, Allah. Jews, one God, Yahweh. Christians, one God who's a trinity. Now, logically, could all those be false? Yes, but they can't possibly all be true. Friends, in a world in which people say all religions are true and we logically see that it can't, how do we determine the difference? 
That's where the evidence comes in. Follow the religion that provides evidence that it's logically true. So the modern argument on religious pluralism is that, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, but someone says, if you believe that Jesus is the only way to God, won't it lead you to impose or force your views on everyone else? That's why Christians shouldn't try to convert people. Um, You can believe whatever you want as long as you don't try to convert people. And what they are really saying by that, in fact, I've actually said this to people, is you're trying to say, I can worship any God I want as long as that God is not someone I'm telling you that you should worship. Now, truthfully, what is religious pluralism? And, 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 I, and I, I'm hoping over time, more time, that we'll find that this is an argument you need to be able to have kind of on the back burner always because it's almost always true of any false religion or false truth Uh, about Christ or the Bible or anything else in our culture. And that is they're always saying that you shouldn't do this and then what they're saying to you is exactly what they're telling you that you've been doing. Um, So I've had people tell me, you should be tolerant and you shouldn't say any religion is right and other ones are wrong and you shouldn't say that Jesus is the only way because that's converting people. I said, well, what are you doing to me? You're telling me I shouldn't do this but I should do it your way. So what is that? That's Right? That's intolerant. Because you're telling me unless I think the way you do and believe the way you do, that's intolerant. That kind of argumentation happens all the time. All the time. So they're telling us not do something, but they're actually doing us at the same time. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is supposedly, right, tolerant. He's tolerant. He, he says all the gods are true, and he'd even include the Jewish god if it was just one of the gods, Right? But notice how he responds. And read chapter 3, turn to the back end of it. Chapter 3 and verse 28. Someone has asked me, in fact, I've been asked numerous times over many years, was Nebuchadnezzar, did he really become a believer? And I would tell you from what I know in Scripture, the answer would be no. Let me tell you why. Look what he says. Now, what does he say after, after, He saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and the fourth man in the fire. And they come out and not only are they not hurt by it, but their clothes aren't singed. They don't smell like smoke. He he sees all of this. What does he say? Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What is he saying? That's religious pluralism. See, he doesn't come out and say after seeing that, what, oh, wow, that is incredible. That is so powerful. I'm so impressed. Now he is, the God of Shabbat is my God. He never once in Daniel says, their God is my God. Never. But he is glad, more than happy after seeing that demonstration, to add the God of the Bible to the pantheon of gods in Babylon. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says... In verse number 28, and it says, Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve, and, and watch, and worship any god except their own god. See, that's what we believe. That's what they did. But that's not where he's at because he's saying, Here's what I'm at. 
I'll include their God, but they are here. It's the only God they serve. He's not convinced that they're the, that God is the only God that should be done. He knows he's powerful. But now, now watch. Why does that little bit matter? Why does that matter? Because here's the argument. If you're a Christian and you're intolerant and you think Jesus is the only way, everybody thinks that that's going to lead to oppression, that's going to lead, you're going to force your views on us, and that's what happened in the Crusades, and that's what happened in all this religious warfare, and we're just afraid it's too dangerous, and so we're not going to have that in America any longer. Look in the passage. It, Nebuchadnezzar says, I know I'm quote-unquote tolerant. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are intolerant. Who is the one who oppresses? Look at verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that everyone should listen to Shadrach, Meshach, no. Everyone should hopefully make the choice that they're going to follow and believe in this God. No. What does he say? I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. So what does he say? He's the tolerant one, right? But if you don't, now if you don't include Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny's God and, and say good things about him, then I'm going to literally cut you in pieces and your house will be completely ruined. Everything you own. So in the story, who is the one who is oppressing? It's Nebuchadnezzar. The one who has tolerant. Now he's forming a different view of tolerance and what that tolerance means. You're going to find that in America, the more that our government and people in America buy into tolerant, the more oppressive it will be. And that's why I tell you in America, not because I'm a prophet, because I can read scripture, I can tell you the day is coming where we will be oppressed. That there will be persecution and it will all be crazy enough all in the name of tolerance. We will be branded intolerant, and that's why uh, they will be allowed to be persecuted. That's what's coming, I believe, in our culture. Now, let me tell you why that is such a sham. <laughs> um, religious pluralism on the outside, like Nebuchadnezzar, looked tolerant. But when it comes right down to it, right, on the inside, when it really came down to it, he was intolerant. Right? He was going to tear you limb from limb and ruin your, tear your house down if you didn't follow his brand of toleration. Right? Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Christianity, looks like to a lot of people it's intolerant because we say Jesus is the only way. But in the reality of it, on the inside, when you come to relationships and everything else, we are far more tolerant. Not tolerant in a compromising way, but tolerant in this way. I believe Christianity creates in the person who gets saved a tolerance and a love for people who differ from them. A love for people who are Muslim and Hindu and Jewish and Buddhists. That we are not forcing people... Uh, and by persecuting them, putting them into prison, taking away their rights to become Christians. That's not what you see when you look at Christianity. That's what you see when you look at the world's system of tolerance. Let me give you a uh, greater illustration. And this is number two. Number two is you need to respond to religious pluralism. Let me show you how you do that. Look at chapter three. And I did a study this week, and then I want to end with Jesus. Um, I did a study on what they did and did not do. How do you respond to religious pluralism if that's the culture you're living in like they were? Well, let me tell you what they didn't do first. They didn't separate from the culture 
nor did they accommodate to the culture. In other words, they didn't stop going to schools where uh, views of, you know, secular pluralism or uh, religious pluralism were put. They went to the universities. They had to, in one sense. They could have said no and they could have been killed, but they chose not to. And they, got, they were actually called, it, by the way, when you look at it, strangely enough, um, in all the other chapters, when he had a dream he needed interpreted, he went to all the, and this is the soothsayers, the, uh, the magicians, and the astrologers. Those were three of the labels. Now, when they finally realize none of those guys can do it, they go to the other soothsayers, astrologers, and, and magicians, and that is Daniel and his friends. They are also under those terms. So they are also have the degrees, they have the background, they have the education that the same guys have. They even have the same titles, but they don't do it the same way whatsoever. They have God the center of it, and that's never become their identity. They're completely different. So here's one way we, we don't reach people uh, in religious plural society is avoiding it. We don't do it by withdrawing ourselves and not being understanding of religious pluralism. You say, well, this probably isn't the most exciting topic I've ever heard on Wednesday night, but it may not be, but we need it because we can't be a church that withdraws ourselves and gets in our little holy huddle and has no answers to what people are going through or talking to people about and what's going on in our culture. They didn't do that, but they didn't accommodate either. They didn't go by and say, like, you know, some of the people I told you last week, uh, on the, you know, some of the famous preachers on the internet and, and on the TV and that rape books who say, you know, hey, I think there are room for people who never hear the gospel that going to, see, are, are still going to go to heaven. We, we don't have to accommodate what we, what we say we believe. We live it out. That's the difference. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, watch. In the, in the sermon, in the service, in the scripture, it says in 3.16 that when he heard they wouldn't bow down after giving him a second chance, the Hebrew word is he was full of fear, fear, fear he was just as much on fire on the inside as the furnace was on the outside. So he stokes it up. He's so hot. He's so hot. He makes the furnace seven times hotter. Now this is the most powerful man in the world, and he's very much enraged, right? Now he's he's spitting out stuff. I mean, he's getting arrogant. He's telling them, "Hey, I'm going to put you in the furnace." And who, and then he says, taunting them, "Who is the God that will save you from that?" Let's see how good your God is. I mean, he's, he's really going after them. And what do you hear them saying? Well, let me tell you this. Our God can beat your God. Any, no, they don't say that. In fact, you don't hear arguments at all. In fact, what infuriates them is verse 16. Here's what he says. O king, by the way, O king, O Nebuchadnezzar, here he is foaming at the mouth practically, losing his temper out of control, and they're the completely opposite of that. They're under control. They're not spitting out all kinds of arguments and countering everything. In fact, here's what they said. Oh, king, we are not careful, King James, right? We don't have to be careful to answer you in this matter. You know what that means in English, <laughs> our English? We, we don't have to defend ourselves. You already know the truth. You know why we didn't bow down. We don't even need to take the time to defend ourselves. You know the answer. And so they say this. Hey, our God can deliver uh, us from the fiery furnace, and ultimately, whether we die or, not, or, or he delivers us, we will be delivered from your hand, O king. In other words, you are second rate, <laughs> right? You're not really the king in charge. You think you are, but you're not. And then he says, hey, but if he doesn't, listen to that. See, watch. You're going to need that. In religious pluralism, when the oppression comes and the persecution comes, you netter, better not be the Christian who says, God can deliver me. Our God is better. Watch this. And he doesn't do it. You have to have it, even if he doesn't, in your vocabulary. 
Because God does not just deliver us from religious pluralism, and I'm going to tell you in a minute why, but there's furnaces involved when you stand up against religious pluralism. You will feel the heat, and you may not always be delivered from it, so you might get ready for that. But he says, who's the God who can deliver you? And they say, hey, let me give you, here's my argument. My argument isn't a lot of words. I'm going into the fire, and when I step into the flames, I'm going to live out the apologetic. I'm going to tell you, this is the one true God. Let me show you how far I would take it. And they go to the fiery furnace. See, they lived out their apologetics. They lived it out. They didn't just say it and mouth it. They lived it. See, that's what angers me as a Christian, as a pastor, because I see people who are on the internet and social media and other places, you know what, they say they're Christian and they're arguing with people and they're inflammatory and they use words, words that are awful, number one, and they arguments and things. They don't really attack the problem. They're not attacking using scripture. They're just attacking the person. And it's awful sometimes. That's not what we do in our, in our culture when we fight religious pluralism. That's not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. That's the opposite of what they did. But what did they do? Well, they went into the furnace. Now, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, and you know this line. It's famous. He says, didn't we put three men in there, and I see four men down there, and they're all walking loose. In other words, their ropes or chains or whatever it was were burned off. They say, I see a fourth man down there, and he says he looks like, literally in Hebrew, a son of the gods. I don't know what made him say that. I don't know if it was the power of the fact that he appeared out of nowhere and they were walking loose and not hurt by it. That would probably be a good reason to think that. But again, it's a pluralistic, religiously pluralistic statement. A son of the gods. In other words, he must be a son of one of the gods. He must have a lot of supernatural power. Maybe he was brighter than the flames. I don't know what caused him to say it, but he thought there was something unique about it, right? And he said, and the, and he, and, and the three... Men there sent the angel of the Lord. Same thing, by the way, in Daniel 6. Daniel says it when he's asked by Cyrus, the Persian, if his God was able to deliver him from the mouth of lions. He said God had sent his angel. Now, you know that's the angel of the Lord, not just a angel. And, and God does that. In the middle of the burning, fiery furnace, God, the angel of the Lord, spoke to Moses. The fiery pillar moved amongst the people of God. And God's presence was in the fiery pillar. When Samson was about to be born, and they had a revelation that God came down, and then he went up after talking to Manoah's wife in Manoah in a fire, in fire straight to heaven. I mean, you see that at Mount Carmel, and God would be demonstrated, the real God would be shown by fire. And the fire came down and looked up the altar and all the things on the altar. And, and, and what Daniel does here, it's the fire, God in the fire, and controlling the fire. And that's what God has done all through scriptures. You go through the New Testament. It's just, our God is a consuming fire. The hell, hell is a lake of fire. I mean, you go on and on. God is always in the fire. And he communicates about the nature of who he is from fire. And so what they're saying is, is that there's a son of the God. And he's, listen, he's different than all this. To watch. Because they lived out their apologetic and went into the flames... Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. And I, if you read it really carefully, listen to listen what he says. He's not just wowed by the fact that they didn't die. He is wowed and amazed by the way, the way their God delivered them. Watch. Look at 328 again. I'm sorry, 329. And their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue 
in this way. So I'm asking myself this week, why didn't God rescue them in a different way? Why didn't he keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from being thrown in the furnace? Because the guys who threw them in died before they could get away. So it could have that they died and they walked back out and they never got in there. It could have been the guys throwing them in died, but they didn't. Or they could have got thrown in the fire and, and a big hand, like the writing on the wall in chapter 5, comes down and scoops them up and takes them out of the fire. Why did he do that? Like Superman, some flying. So why did he do it this way? Why did he ever let him go in the fire to begin with? See, he's showing Nebuchadnezzar, this is what the difference between all of your so-called gods is and the real God. Nebuchadnezzar knows this. is He has just watched a contest. This has been a contest between the so-called Babylonian gods and Shadrach, the one true God. And here's what his conclusion is. There is no other God. There is no other God that can deliver in this way. And what is that way? He let the three guys go into the fire and delivered them out of the fire. Why does that matter? Well, let me tell you this. Ask people who don't believe in Jesus as God that when you get into the furnaces of your life, what God will be with you in your furnace? Ask them. Ask the atheist who believes in no God or the agnostic who doesn't think that he believes in any God that could really possibly be out there. And if there was one, you couldn't know him. Ask him that when you get into the furnaces and the fires of your life and things are going awful, will your God that you serve, if there even is one, will he be with you in your fire? And if he was, what could he possibly do? But the God of the Bible, the true God, the living God, he didn't just come down to save right? He didn't pull you up. He came down. He didn't just reach down. He came down. He could have just gone like this and pulled them out. He didn't. He went in the fire with them. Read Isaiah 43. When you go through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fiery furnace, the flames, I'll be with you. When the floods overflow you, God says, I'll be with you. That's the God of the Bible. Now, why did God do that? Because, you know, Jesus is the angel of the Lord. And he's in the fiery furnace. And he's amazing. Why? Because he's not just the God who's out there, outside the fire, doing things. He's the God who walks with you in the fire. That's the difference between your God, our God and everybody else's. Now, see, Jesus died on the cross. So is, is, is believing in Jesus only, and I'm done with this, is that going to lead to totalitarianism or intolerance or force or military overpowering? Let me tell you, what is the central tenet, the one, number one truth about Christianity that we would want everyone to believe? What we preach on Sunday morning at the park, what is the number one thing that we want people to see and know about the Bible? If we had to have one thing, what would it be? Jesus died on the cross. Now, have you ever thought about that? Jesus dying on the cross. How did he, when you look at the cross, what do you see? You believed in a man, this is a man dying on the cross who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. You can't come to the Father but by me. He was an exclusivist. He believed in, he was the monotheist. He was God. He was the only one. And he was the only way to salvation. So did it bring oppression? No. Why was he dying? Because he was being oppressed. 
All the people that were oppressing him were the ones that had part in crucifying him. Now see, Christianity doesn't lead to the cross of Jesus loving us, bleeding for us, dying. It doesn't lead to totalitarianism or force or oppression. It leads to love and sacrificial love that's willing to suffer and die. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped into the furnace. Jesus stepped into the cross. Because that's Christianity. Lived out Christianity. It's the answer to the argument of religious pluralism. Not just a verbal argument, but a visible argument. People need to know by the way that you live, not only when you tell them about why religious pluralism is wrong and Jesus is the only way, but by how you face your furnaces. And praise God tonight. Isn't it true? Aren't we grateful that we don't have just a God who goes you know, in the furnace, but he goes with us in the furnace as well? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truths of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We live in an age where it's people uh, don't really want to tolerate a view that only one religion could be right and there's only one God. But that is the gospel in which we preach. Help us to not only preach it with our lips, but help us to preach it with our lives. In the way that we go through our furnaces, in the way that we go through our trials, it's not a matter, Lord, of if we will go through them, but when we go through them, that we live as if we know that there's a God, the God of the Bible, that goes with us in that fire. Thank you for taking our eternal fire. Lord, thank you for taking all the punishment that we deserve so that we can have life in your name. Help us to live it out and speak it out for your glory and for the good of our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.